joining us on today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio this afternoon. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to take a minute to thank our episode sponsor, GlaxoSmithKline, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Now, before we get started today, I'd like to mention that the topic we'll be discussing today with Dr. Keith Stewart has a great deal to do with the genetics of myeloma. And last Saturday, we hosted a Myeloma Crowd virtual roundtable with Dr. Sikander Alawadi, Dr. Faith Davies, and Dr. Brian Van Ness to discuss myeloma genetics. We also have an entire course inside of Heltree University dedicated to myeloma genetics that's taught by myeloma experts, and you can access those resources on the myelomacrowd.org website and on the healthtree.org website because we should all understand our own type of myeloma. So we're excited to have Dr. Keith Stewart with us on the program today. Welcome, Dr. Stewart. Uh, well, uh, hi, Jenny. Great to be here. And uh, let me just introduce you before we start in with um, questions and the topic that we're here to talk about today. Uh, Dr. Keith Stewart is Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, Vice President of Cancer at the University Health, Net- Health Network, Medical Director at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, Vice President of the Toronto Central South Regional Cancer Program of Ontario Health, and the Richard H. Clark Chair in Cancer Medicine. Prior to this recent appointment, Dr. Stewart was Medical Director of the Clinical Cancer Research Unit at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, Professor of Medicine and Consultant in Hematology and Oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. He's returning to his roots at the University of Toronto, having started there in 1992. He serves on the Scientific Advisory Board of the MMRF of Myeloma UK and the National Cancer Institute's Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program. Dr. Stewart received the Vasek and Anna Maria Pollock Professor of Cancer Research at the Mayo Clinic for 10 years, has been listed in America's Top Doctors, and was in Canada's Top 40 Under 40 list of physicians in 2002. Dr. Stewart has an, is an editorial board member of the American Society of Hematology, or ASH, Clinical News, and has performed editorial service for blood, current gene therapy, and targeted therapies in oncology. Additionally, he's reviewed articles in over 19 additional publications. Dr. Stewart has research specifically supported by the NCI with a very coveted SPORE grant as well as other grants on the topic we'll be discussing today, um, clonal evolution in myeloma and high-throughput drug screening and correlations with mutational status in myeloma cell lines. He has also performed significant research funded by the NCI on overcoming drug resistance. So welcome again, Dr. Stewart. We're so excited about your work and um, this topic today. Well, thanks, Jenny. That guy sounds great. So um, uh, <laughs> thank great. you for the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this new um, research that um, was done while you were at the Mayo Clinic, but I'm sure you're continuing your work there at Princess Margaret. Um, what was the hypothesis to create a, a new test to, scrug, to screen drugs against different types of myeloma? Well, Jenny, we had, we had been um, working on trying to develop our own drug, uh, some work we had done with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And um, we started partnering with a, a group of medicinal chemists or people who make drugs for a living uh, in actually in California. And uh, at some point in our efforts, uh, one of them who had, had decades of experience making drugs for pharma said, you know, keep the the quick way to success in this business isn't what you're doing. It's drug repurposing. And mm. drug repurposing is <clears throat> the notion of taking drugs that are used for a different indication and using them to treat uh, cancers or other diseases. The, the, the classic example, of course, being thalidomide, uh, which turned into revlimid and pomalidomide, which, uh, you know, is obviously probably one of history's uh, greatest examples of of how this can work properly. (coughs) Excuse me. So um, we thought about what they said and decided that we would um, uh, try and explore drug repurposing. Uh, So Mm -hmm. we took took out of their fridges and freezers that they had not only the uh, all the known drugs that worked in myeloma, which in some ways would be a positive control, but also uh, some drugs that we thought might be active but had never really been tested. So that's how we started. And um, we quickly recognized that there were some uh, opportunities 
to, to take the system we'd built and to try and use it to personalize therapy for patients. So, um, and please interrupt me if I if I keep going on too much. Um, oh no, sure. What what we what what we had built was uh, using robotics. We would take uh, a bone marrow sample from a patient with myeloma. We would sort out from the total bone marrow the the tumor cell, the myeloma cells, and then we would place those into uh, tiny little wells with only one or 2,000 cells per well, and we would use plates with 96 wells on them or, or, or even larger or smaller plates. Um, and then we would use a robot to deliver drugs at different concentrations into the, the wells to see if they were able to uh, kill off the myeloma cells in that system. And doing that, we realized that this might be a way to personalize care and we ended up selecting about 80 drugs, which in our studies, both known drugs and some that weren't known to work in myeloma, uh, would mm-hmm. be suitable for this kind of testing. So the idea when we started was, let's build a... Now we have these robotics. We know how to do this. It seems to work. Uh, can we build a test that when I take uh, a bone marrow from a patient, uh, within a few days... Uh, we can come back to the patient. Excuse me. Oh, you're fine. Can, can come back to the patient and uh, tell them that um, certain drugs would work in their condition and certain drugs would not. So that was the, the premise of how we started. The important things were we we wanted it to be something that would be uh, quite quick to turn around, uh, mm-hmm. quite simple to quite simple to perform, and that would be. Um, uh, something that's compatible with getting approval for this to be a clinical test one day. And did so you start this process a long time ago? Yeah, we probably started maybe, uh, I'm going to guess, about four years ago. Um, so it took us a while to establish the system, uh, to do the drug libraries, the library of drugs, to screen that, to see which drugs might be suitable, uh, to refine the conditions. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things we found is that you could tell within 24 hours of adding the drug to the tumor cells that uh, this drug was likely to be effective. And if you waited longer, it would just be more obvious. So that was quite important because uh, for your listeners, myeloma cells, uh, when you take them outside of the human body, uh, die quite quickly, actually. They're seem to be very highly dependent on substances in the body that keep them alive. And so they only really survived at best for three or four days, sometimes five days. So we needed something that worked quite quickly and that was reliable. And I think um, there's an interesting finding we'll talk about later about um, some of the imids that they take a little bit longer to work. But and, Yeah, we'll come back to those because they're a strange breed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You also talked about this um, this being primarily a research tool, but it could end up as a clinical tool. I think patients are just curious about that, and maybe it's just for research, because if you can do high-throughput high screening on hundreds of drugs, um, that's a lot faster than than guessing, even if it's not so a clinical our, tool. Our, right, so our work uh, initially set out to... Um, do exactly that, which was to build a clinically relevant test that we might apply to to patients. I don't know that we will uh, take it forward as a clinical test for for some reasons. Maybe we can discuss later. But it is uh, there are companies out there that are doing this now. Um, particularly in uh, there are some companies doing this in, in the leukemias. I think there are even one or two country, co- companies, if you search hard enough, that might offer something similar in myeloma. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but I think for a variety of reasons, we are going to probably um, keep this in the research arena for now. Um, you, you'll probably go into a little bit of detail some of the things we found. Uh, but at probably at this point, it's important to mention that we, we ended up studying about, uh, in our paper, about 100 myeloma patients. But now uh, through our um, Biden Moonshot Grant for the National Cancer Institute, and, uh, which mm-hmm. is to look at drug resistance, uh, we uh, have studied about 160 patients as well as about 40 myeloma cell lines, which are, of course, immortalized cells that we can use um, and are replenishable. 
So with that, the, the, the thing that you started off mentioning was the genetics of myeloma. Mm-hmm. And we decided we would not only look to see what drugs worked in an individual patient, but we would also do genetic studies to see if we could link the responsiveness of a patient to a certain drug to the type of genetics that were driving the tumor to grow in the first place. And that, in some ways, uh, became just as interesting as the concept. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that um, I'll tell you that you know when we sent uh, grants and papers for review. One of the criticisms, which is a valid one, of what we've done is that myeloma cells, as I mentioned already, are quite highly dependent on uh, the natural environment of the bone marrow for survival. And there are many groups, uh, quite rightly, who say if you take that natural survival away, um, you're probably biasing your drug library screening in favor of killing the cells because that natural support system, the, the gas and electricity and water to the, the house if you want, it doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore. And, and so that was true, and we, we acknowledge that that's a, a weakness. So on the other hand, to create that environment in a way that would be compatible with a clinical test is almost impossible, and so that is why we, uh, we chose to do something simple and efficient, and um, we thought that because we could see a result within 24 hours, it sort of fulfilled those criteria. Mm-hmm. And uh, the speed of death is probably indicative too, right? I mean, that's what you're looking at. And to be able to do such a broad set, I think, is just fascinating. You were testing also individual drugs, right? It wasn't like you were doing combinations of drug therapies or you were just screening a big panel of drugs. Our, our first paper looked at, we started off with about 300 drugs and we picked 80. So all the drugs yeah. you've heard about and some that you haven't. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we, So what we do for each patient is we test all 80 drugs, one at a time, against uh, the, the patient's cells. And what we did, because sometimes you don't have enough cells to do all 80 drugs, what we, had, we did is we put what we thought were the most interesting drugs on the first plate so that mm-hmm. uh, if cells were limiting, at least we could study maybe only the first 14. or the first, I, think, I think we could fit 14 drug tests on one plate, so we would, we would go in batches of 14, 28, et cetera. So uh, for each patient, we'd be able to tell their physician of the 80 drugs we tested. Uh, these drugs were uh, killed myeloma cells quite effectively. These did not at all, and some of them mm-hmm. were in the middle. And then uh, uh, provide that result back. them. now, because it was research, we, we couldn't provide it as a clinical test, and they couldn't uh, take action on it. But it was, it was more to try and understand whether it would be helpful or not in a real-life situation. And plus, it might uncover a whole new class of drug, just like the thalidomide accident, essentially. And it, actually ha- it actually has, uh, we think. Uh, mm. We found a class of drugs that we had not expected to find. And uh, we are. And when you talk about you know, what are we going to do in our research uh, moving forward, uh, you've already hit on the two things we, we're going to focus on. Uh, the first is combinations of drugs. Uh, we don't think... Uh, and history teaches us that a single drug is unlikely to be effective against a, a, even in a single patient. There are many flavors of myeloma, and we don't think a single drug is going to capture all of these at the same time. Also, sometimes one and two equals four in chemotherapy worlds, and we wanted to see if we could find drugs that work more effectively together, um, mm-hmm. which we've done in some instances, and I can talk about that later. Uh, and then uh, the second part of our research was to um, to explore these new drugs that we found that we think should be effective in myeloma and should be pursued into the clinical in the clinic and trials. Okay, now you have you have me very curious. <laughs> so I'm I'm making a note that we talk about these new classes, um, but uh, and and I'm grateful that you're thinking about all the genetics as well. I've heard other uh, myeloma experts say sometimes that they are surprised at how aggressive what might be considered standard risk myeloma can behave. And then alternatively, some patients have these high-risk features but don't behave as high-risk. And I know you have such a – the Mayo Clinic Scottsdale group was really well-known, I think, for the genomics of multiple myeloma. Are there any thoughts that you have around that before we jump into some of the findings? 
Yes, I think what, what the audience, the myeloma patients listening, need to understand is the type of genetic testing we do today as a routine clinical test is not particularly sophisticated. And mm-hmm. it is, uh, only gives uh, sort of um, a fairly coarse uh, estimate of risk. To get to the full estimate of risk, one needs to do much more sophisticated testing, um, uh, sequencing of the genome, looking at the RNA, which is the product of DNA, and, and is what actually is the machinery driving the cell. It's not the, it's not the blueprint. It's the actual workhorse. And so you mm-hmm. can do those tests. Uh, some of them are commercially available. There's a company... Um, called Skyline Diagnostics in the Netherlands that, that offers testing for the RNA, and it's been uh, quite good at showing prognosis, less good at predicting what uh, therapies you should receive. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you do uh, genomic sequencing, you actually find that there are many, many more genetic changes present in an individual myeloma patient than, than we're currently testing for. And, you know, groups like the Myeloma Research Foundation's COMPASS study, which studied over a 1,000 patients and continues to be an ongoing uh, study, uh, has mm-hmm. found, for example, that uh, you require sometimes, um, uh, you, you can dissect down to very fine detail what is a very bad myeloma versus an okay myeloma, even though the FISH testing, which most people have done, which is the, the standard clinical test, uh, indicates uh, low or high risk, and, and it may not be correct. So uh, one of the shocking findings, actually, is some of your audience will have heard about um, uh, deletion of chromosome 17 or, or mm-hmm. uh, the gene is P53, and that if you have uh, loss of that uh, part of chromosome 17, that you're a high-risk patient. And that's about 10% of all patients with diagnosis and but with each subsequent relapse, it becomes more frequent. And what we mm-hmm. learned in the COMPASS study is, in fact, as you're, I hopefully your audience will know, uh, you have two copies of every gene, and, and it turns out you have to damage both copies, not just one, which was what we're testing for, to be truly high risk. And so part of the implication is a lot of patients that we're telling are high risk are probably not. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, there may be some some who are standard risk who, as you pointed out, do badly and, and are clearly uh, are higher risk genetically than we first suspected. It would be mm-hmm. naive, however, to say that we understand everything. I think even with genetic testing, um, there is still a lack of – it's still imprecise. And I think this is why people are beginning to explore things beyond um, genetics to look at the – the, the chemicals and the proteins that um, ultimately make the clock run in the cell and try and decipher better what's a high-risk patient and what's not and what makes them drug-resistant and what makes them sensitive, which is mm-hmm. sort of why we combine genetics with the drug screening. Right. And so nowadays, are you suggesting that your patients get either the gene expression profile like the Sky92 test or the the next generation sequencing like the foundation medicine test when you do genetics? Well, the foundation medicine test would be, uh, um, would be halfway there. In fact, you, okay. you can go much deeper than that even. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's like many things in medicine. The science is ahead of the funding. And so mm-hmm. today it's hard to get funding for anything except the basics on a routine basis. But the science mm-hmm. is telling us that we, we should be digging deeper. And that over time, that will gradually become a part of our routine workup. But for today, it's usually in the United States, it's, uh, we, we do fish testing. And it mm-hmm. is usually, in most cases, it, you're able to get the genetic sequencing if you, if you want it done. Um, myeloma, first, the myeloma panel we developed uh, Dr. Langer, Sloan Kettering, I, I think, has one. And then, of course, there's Foundation Medicine and Tempest, the, the sort of commercial labs that will offer this kind of testing as well. So mm-hmm. if I were a patient with myeloma, I'd want that done. Um, the question yeah. is whether the insurance company will pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you kind of have to ask your care team uh, for it specifically. Yeah, you, and you and you can push a bit. And sometimes it can be done on a research protocol, even if it's not a uh, clinical, clinically valid test. It can be done on, as a, on a research basis. So certainly, mm-hmm. as you point out, it's something our group in Scottsdale um, and across the Mayo Clinic uh, really focused on for many years is how to develop these tests into 
bring them up as clinically diagnostic. Um, I will say that much of um, much of the reason the sequencing hasn't caught on is at this time, uh, much of the information you learn is interesting, but it doesn't terribly alter treatment. Um, the, the, the one place where I saw recently that it does alter treatment was some data that the Skyline group had generated where they suggested mm-hmm. that just using their test changed the type of treatment people got almost half the time so that some patients who were thought to be standard risk became high risk, some high risk patients became standard risk, and their physicians took that information and altered not necessarily the drugs the patient would get, but perhaps how long they stayed on them, whether a second transplant would be used because this was done in Europe, um, whether maintenance was with one drug or two drugs. So they made some alteration to therapy based on that test. And I I think that will gradually pick up steam. Right now, that test isn't FDA approved. Um, It is available at some centers around the, the country and I uh, certainly you should be asking your physician if it is available or if similar genetic tests are available at your center. Yeah, I think especially at uh, as you're newly diagnosed or you're relapsing and trying to decide what to do. You know, I think information is power, so uh, it never hurts to have more information about your disease. And, um, you know, certainly sometimes it's not what you want to hear, but it's, it's usually better to know that for many reasons. Uh, one, it might change your treatment. Two, new drugs might come along that aren't available today, and, and we'll maybe mm-hmm. talk about genetic clients later as an example of that. Uh, three, sometimes it's just better for life planning to know, uh, you know, what side of the fence you sit on. Yeah, I completely agree. So when you were mentioning the test, you talked about it running it in 24 hours and being within 24 hours, you could kind of tell. Um, is that kind of the normal turnaround time? Was there a different turnaround time? How long did you let it go also to see? And you mentioned, you know, we, that myeloma cells are dying outside the bone marrow. Yeah, we, we tried 24, 72, and five days. Um, and what we saw is... If you take it five days, we lost a lot of cells, so it wasn't. It was a bit noisy. Uh, if you looked at 72 hours, it was probably the cleanest time point mm-hmm. for analysis. However, we realized that at 24 hours, um, you could already see that pattern emerging, and not much changed over the the next two days, except there was more cells dying. Uh, so we ended up because there were more cells alive to study, and because it was a faster turnaround, using 24 hours as our metric. Now, you mentioned the immune modulating drugs earlier, Jenny, which are, um, again, thalidomide, lenalidomide or revlimid, and pomalidomide or pomalist, mm-hmm. and iberdomide, which is the new one that's coming. And they all work the same way. Essentially, it's that one after the other, they, they become stronger. One of the things that I've always puzzled about, and we've studied these drugs for, for decades now, um, and which this test really brought home to me is they are pretty horrible at trying to kill myeloma in, in outside of the body. They, they really don't do a very good job. And, in this, hmm. and one of the reasons our test turned out, I think, not to be as clinically uh, useful as we thought it might be is you couldn't really tell uh, if the IMED drugs, these, these four drugs, because we studied them all, uh, were working or not. And even if you waited for, you could kind of tell at five days uh, mm-hmm. which ones were responding, which one weren't. And the other thing that people I don't think have fully explained yet is you need huge doses of the drugs. I mean, thousands of times higher doses of the drugs than you need for, for other more effective drugs. For example, uh, you know, bertezomib or carfilzomib, uh, the proteasome inhibitors. Um, you know, you need what we call nanomolar concentration, which is tiny amounts of the drug versus micromolar, so a thousand times more drug to get the same effect. So why that is true, I have no idea today. I, I think it suggests that some of the action of those drugs might not be directly related to killing the cells, but more to activating the immune system or um, or causing some uh, arrest of cell growth. Because one of the, the assay we use measures uh, the, the inability of, it measures cell death. It doesn't mm-hmm. measure very well if the cell just stops growing. That that doesn't help as much. So that, mm-hmm. that's one of the mysteries of life that we haven't figured out yet. Why are mm-hmm. these drugs so powerful in, in humans, and yet 
uh, if you were to take a lab-based test to try and decide what drugs to use, you would never pick these ones. So, um, you know, fortunately, through serendipity, they turned out to be um, a very powerful and probably one of the most useful drugs we have in this disease. Uh, but had you started where we are and looking for drugs that look good in a test tube, you would never have picked those three drugs. Um, so that's a very curious thing and, and one that we still don't really understand. And, and right, that's and too scientific name. about yeah. it. Yes, no, go ahead. Right. Well, they, it's the name to... immunomodulator, right? So they're modulating the immune system, which is maybe why they're only good. I don't know. Well, that's, I think that and it may be that they've been very aptly named because of that. They were named that because of the effect they have on some of the proteins that stimulate the immune system, particularly they block mm-hmm. one of them. And, and secondly, they, they increase one of them called interleukin-2. Um, but for many years, I don't think any of us thought that's how they were working until sort of the, the, uh, the discovery that CAR T-cells were so effective, I think had us re, re-examine this this, um, this this skill these drugs have to kill cells in, in in humans that it may actually be due to their immune activation as much as directly killing a myeloma cell. Mm-hmm. But we're sort of diverging a little bit. That these are sort of theoretical things right now. The, the important thing for patients is they work extremely well. Well, let's talk about what what else you learned because I was blown away at all the detail that you learned from this study. I was just amazed by it. <laughs> so. Well, it was it was many many years of work with a talented team, and I, I should give credit to to my lab and to um, Dr. Nathan Maurice, who, who did all the drug, and her husband Joachim Petit, who did all the the drug screening and, and the staff that analyzed it. So, so just to summarize for the audience a little bit, um, some of the things we learned. First of all, the drugs we thought would work really well worked really well. So the proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib and carfilzomib were consistently at the top of the list of most effective drugs. Uh, the immune modulators, which we talked about um, uh, already, were, were dis- disappointingly not among that top list. Um, the, the second thing we learned, there was about 10 drugs that we studied that were uh, completely inactive. Um, some of the drugs which were, even at the time, in clinical trials for, for myeloma. So, for example, we studied a drug called ibrutinib. Nebrutinib is approved and used in, in other leukemias, particularly chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, and was in clinical trials in myeloma when we started this study. Uh, we saw no activity of that drug at all in myeloma. So you know, one of the things we point out is if you did this kind of screening, you could probably reject drugs more, more quickly, um, or I think more importantly, you could select in the lab patients who are most likely to respond to the drug and enrich your clinical trial for those patients so you would see faster evidence of activity and hopefully get to faster drug approvals. The, the, the next thing we found, uh, Jenny, was that um, by this time, the drug venetoclax had sort of been discovered to be very powerful, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your show before, in, in one particular genetic type of myeloma. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 just in case other people haven't heard this from other places, it's, it's a type of myeloma. It's 20% of myeloma patients, and they have broken chromosome 11, and it's joined to chromosome 14. So a good reason to get genetic testing done today is to find out if you have that type. Um, and uh, that particular type turns out to be exquisitely sensitive to the drug venetoclax. Uh, which is approved by the FDA for, for a number of cancers, not yet myeloma, but uh, approved for a number of acute leukemia. is really changing how that's treated. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia is changing how that's treated. Anyway, the, the, the point of my story is that um, in our system, we went to look to see, number one, does venetoclax work? The answer is yes, but only you know, 30, 40% of the time. And then did it mimic what we're seeing in humans, that it mostly worked in these uh, translocation 1114 patients and the answer was yes so it was mm-hmm. a sort of positive validation of the power of the assay was that um, this drug was working in the test tube just like it did in humans and in, in the same genetic uh, subgroup of patients conversely uh, when we looked at selenexor which as you know has recently been approved 
we mm-hmm. found that rather than being active in uh, good risk patients like translocation 1114, uh, mm-hmm. Selenex are turned out to be most active in the higher risk patients. Uh, those with, for example, loss of chromosome 17 that we discussed earlier. We were also able, Jenny, because we took randomly took bone marrow from any patient that was willing to share with us some of their precious tissue. We uh, we had patients who were newly diagnosed, and we had patients who were on their first relapse, and we had patients who had had many prior therapies, and we were able to then correlate what stage of disease were you at when the drug worked. Mm-hmm. And again, we found that venetoclax, for example, worked better if you treated people earlier in their disease course. And or conversely, worked better in people with more advanced disease. And so just as Selenexor has been approved for now and sort of more heavily pretreated, uh, higher-risk patients, we kind of uh, were able to see that as well in, the, in this uh, assay. One of the one of the sort of global questions we asked was, um, if you just put everything together on one picture and said, you know, where is myeloma most sensitive to these drugs? It was kind of the opposite of what you would expect. So you would think, I've got a new cancer, it should be most sensitive to the most drugs. Mm-hmm. In fact, we found the opposite. So we found that in newly diagnosed myeloma, less of the drugs were active. And in, in hmm. people who had um, late-stage myeloma, more of the drugs were active, particularly classes of drugs we don't usually use in, in myeloma therapy. And uh, the thinking there is that as the myeloma gets progressively more drug-resistant, uh, it's growing a bit faster, uh, it has got more genetic mutation, it opens itself up to sensitivity to drugs that, that don't exist when the myeloma is slow-growing and uh, hmm. Not particularly genetically disrupted, and and so that's that was another that was a sort of surprising finding, but I, I think maybe explainable. So those were yeah, that seems those opposite. were some of the other things we found. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it would be opposite. It'd be much more sensitive. When so, did you find uh, which drugs were the most sensitive for newly diagnosed myeloma samples? Yeah, so. So the most sensitive drugs were the, the proteasome inhibitors, uh, carfilzomib mm-hmm. and bortezomib. Uh, there were some other drugs in there, though. Um, Selenexor was, was also quite sensitive. I mean, it still worked quite well in newly diagnosed patients. It was, it was just more evident in, in late stages. Um, hmm. There was a drug called rombidepsin, which is used for T-cell lymphoma that worked very well in our assay, but we don't use in myeloma, so it might be worth exploring uh, some more. And... Um, trying to think off the top of my head what was in that top five list. And then venetoclax, if you had that particular translocation. Uh, corticosteroids, of course, dexamethasone, uh, more active in newly diagnosed patients, as you would expect. So it kind of, apart with the exception of the immune modulators, it sort of fit the pattern of what we've seen. We did not mm-hmm. test daratumumab. Um, we we just didn't have that in the panel at the time, and uh, we weren't sure it would work in our assay. So we, we have never gone back to look at uh, any of the immune therapies like daratumumab or the CAR-T or BITES that activate T-cells because they wouldn't be likely to, to, to work in our assay. I think other drugs like GlaxoSmithKline's um, drug that's working its way through yeah, the that, FDA. Um, the antibody uh, drug conjugate? Yeah, uh, probably mm-hmm. would work in, in, um, in this assay, but we didn't uh, study at the time. What I was sorry, thank you. The other drug, the other drug we found uh, that was very powerful in newly diagnosed patients was the drug panobinostat. And, mm-hmm. and many of you may not have heard of panobinostat, but it was FDA, is FDA approved for multiple myeloma, um, particularly when combined with a proteasome inhibitor. And we found it to be extremely potent in this assay. So both Rombi, both Panabinistat and Selenex are both approved for treatment of myeloma, both very powerfully active in these assays. Uh, the challenge is that they're also somewhat toxic to humans. So they're obviously mm-hmm. hitting the right things. They're, they're, they're doing their job, and they were brought forward as drugs because they're doing their job in all these models. Uh, but the problem is when you give them to humans, they do other things as well. And so both drugs uh, cause diarrhea and fatigue and will or blood platelets, 
And so for that reason, they haven't perhaps had the, um, either we haven't explored the right dose or combination of those drugs that, that can be given more safely yet, or um, uh, because they do hit all the right notes uh, when you look at them in, in an assay like this. And, and they should and are probably very powerfully effective if you could give enough of a drug safely to a human. Mm-hmm. And is that so why panobinostat isn't used as often, just the side effect profile? Uh, Absolutely, is is the main reason mm-hmm. it's not used that often. And and in the groups of patients it was studied, or, or it it was effective but not hugely effective. Uh, but in in um, if it was less toxic, I think we'd use it a lot because it does work quite well. Mhm. So you XR, some... I think that, that, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go, please, oh. Jen. <laughs> well, I don't want to cut you off from your thoughts. So you were saying so something about Selenexor. Well, I think with Celnex are um, the companies doing the right things. They're exploring lower doses less frequently in combination with other drugs. And we learned recently when you give a much lower dose with bortezomib, it's very, very effective. And the side effects are, are more manageable. I actually don't like that term, manageable. Um, but they're, they're, they're a bit less. And so I think it's still a difficult drug for patients to take. But as we explore how to give it more safely, I think there's still opportunity there. Mhm. And um so you kind of went over deletion 17p. What about the um that selenexor might be better in those patients? Did you find anything else for deletion 17p? And then what about the 1q gain or 414 or the other or maybe even 1416 that are con- considered to be more high risk features? Um we di- we didn't have one second I'm just going to me for just 10 seconds, okay? I'm sorry. Oh sure. Entertainment audience. <laughs> I might just sing everyone a song. We'll see. Sorry about that. Somebody <laughs> no, coming to the door of my firm. Um, so where were we? Uh, we were talking about 1Q gain, 414, other deletion 17P ideas or or working therapies. Yeah, I, I think that's already described the two main findings, which were the, the um, 1114 and the, the, the deletion 17 patients. Uh, we mm-hmm. still have a lot of data to go through and analyze because we did um, look at uh, all 20,000 genes that are in the mm. human genome and uh, to try and d- decipher you know, whether there were patterns of those genes that linked to whether the drug worked or not. The problem you get into a little bit, there's so many different types of myeloma and so many different mutations that, that despite the fact we looked at 150 patients, it gets down to quite small numbers quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a, a mutation of something called IDH, which happens in about one to two percent of myeloma patients. And there's drugs you can you can target that with, um, but of course we only had maybe three or four patients in our whole group, so it, it's not very much to work on because they're just such a rare thing to see happen. So I, I I don't I think that, that unless there's something else the paper I've forgotten about those were our main findings with with respect to genetics but more work to be done. Yeah, and then did you um, did you see similar things for what you call double hit myeloma? You might need to explain that or triple hit myeloma. Yeah, so double hit myeloma is what I was talking about earlier. Well, it, sorry, it's not really. Um, so we worked with Gareth Morgan and his mm-hmm. team in Arkansas, and then they moved to New York. And um, what we did with Gareth is we, 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 well, what Gareth did really, I shouldn't take the credit for this, uh, and his team did is they, they looked at the large numbers of myeloma patients, maybe 1,500, and then they looked at all the different genetic changes. They looked at the age and the kidney function and the hemoglobin and the performance status of the patient and uh, tried to decide that what was the um, the most high-risk patient population. And they discovered uh, there were only sort of three things that predicted for very high-risk disease. Um, one of them was double-hit myeloma because there were two genetic changes that mm-hmm. uh, defined what that would look like. So it could be you have uh, one of the chromosome translocation, so the chromosomes are broken and rejoined, that we know are high risk. You could have one of those, but you had a second change too, which might be deletion of chromosome 17, for example. And we stole the term double hit from the lymphoma doctors because they had already used this to describe lymphoma patients 
who had two genetic changes and were a very high risk for early relapse. And so we, we came up and just with this term double hip myeloma and triple hip myeloma means you have three bad genetic changes in your cells and instead of two bad hit, which which was the double hit. The the um the good news for myeloma patients is only about six percent of all patients studied had double hit myeloma. So ninety four percent of patients did not. Uh, mm. So studying those, that population is going to be tricky in trials because it's quite, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's 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 not that common, which yeah. is good. Yeah, interesting. And then triple hit is just having three different genetic mutations. Yeah, so mm-hmm. something like translocation 414 and deletion 17 and amplification of chromosome 1, all of which are mm-hmm. individually associated with higher risk if you put all three together. That's going to be a difficult case. That uh, and the, the connotation for the, the physician is you better treat that aggressively or look for new ways to treat it, like CAR T therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and um, it's not a guarantee that anybody with those changes will do badly, but just on average they will do less well than than other patients. And uh, because everybody still remains a bit unique, so not to despair if you find those things, but rather just. Um, um, you know, look for perhaps alternative therapies or a more aggressive approach to therapy, and you may still do very, very well uh, with, that, with those changes. But all, overall, if you took 100 patients with that and 100 patients without it, 100 patients with it would overall not do as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about precursor conditions. Did you have smoldering myeloma samples um, in addition to the myeloma samples? And then um, how did they what – was, what were the difference in, in – Responses, I guess, to these drugs. Yeah, we had some, but not very many, because uh, we we mm-hmm. tried not to have them because it was a different question. We ended up with mm-hmm. about eight out of 150, and we just to to make this analysis simpler, we just decided to treat those as uh, as newly diagnosed myeloma. Um, so I I don't have anything impactful or meaningful to tell you about uh, the differences that we found on our studies. I think mm-hmm. generally we would expect that smoldering myeloma cells would be um, slower growing and, uh, you know, still quite very sensitive to the drugs we know to work in myeloma, but as I mentioned already, probably less sensitive to the broader panel of drugs, which are less specific, I think. So not not mm-hmm. much to say about that. You know, the, the treatment of smoldering myeloma is a bit controversial right now, as you know. Um, yeah. And I, I think my opinion is a bit different from others. I don't think treating a myeloma with a single drug like Revlimid or daratumumab, for that matter, is a, is a terribly good idea. Um, mm-hmm. Others have shown in studies that your myeloma doesn't... It takes you longer to develop myeloma if you're on those drugs, which is for sure. And that could be a good thing, just to allow more drugs to become available. I just worry that um, essentially what you're going to do is breed drug-resistant cells before you need to. And that you know the best way to get a drug-resistant cell in the lab is to grow a myeloma cell or another cancer cell in low doses of a single drug for a long time. It almost guarantees that you'll get drug resistance. So I just worry a little bit that unless you're really, really clearly going to go on and get myeloma in in the next 18 months, I would personally not recommend therapy. And Mm -hmm. I think if you are going to treat myeloma and you decide it needs treated, uh, then you should treat it properly and you should give all the same drugs you would give to a newly diagnosed patient. But that's uh, that's probably a minority opinion these days, and and certainly if your physician feels otherwise, you should talk to them about it and, and go through the pros and cons. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I think if you're gonna if you have it, just treat it, and if you can wait it wait it out and not be on anything, that might be better. You don't make the cells more sophisticated. So I had a question, too, on cyclophosphamide. So I have um, a lot of I, – I find that a lot of people use cyclophosphamide kind of later on in therapy when things start not working. And I just didn't understand the findings. It it sounded well, like it yes. wasn't helpful or – No, it's, it's quite simple, really. Um, uh, so cyclophosphamide is a good drug in myeloma. We used it a lot back in the old days. It's, it's a, of the same class of drug as melphalan. They're called yeah. alkylating agents. They, 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 and it's a very good drug. It's also quite easy to take, very few side effects. Um, can be given orally. 
Uh, in fact, it's probably better orally once a week. And um, it can play an important role in people's therapy. In fact, as you know, many of your patients will know, we used cyclosmide in newly diagnosed patients for many years uh, and still do uh, when sometimes, for example, Revlimid isn't available and the patient's in, in hospital and you can't get access to Revlimid, there's still a lot of cyclophosphamide used. So very useful drug. Uh, cyclophosphamide is metabolized. So you take what is essentially a prodrug and it's not active until it's uh, metabolized uh, in the body and it becomes active. And we forgot this when we set up our screen. And we use mm. the in we use the prodrug or the, the stuff you would swallow, uh, but has not been metabolized. So, um, mm. like you, we were a bit surprised at first to see there was no activity, and then we realized, of course, that uh, that's actually a good thing. It proved that our assay was correct because there's no way the drug could work without metabolism. So it was a negative control. That, that's and that's what we said in the paper. So, uh, as expected, the negative control of cyclophosphamide, which has not been metabolized and doesn't work. Um, sort of was kind of useful in some ways to show that the assay wasn't just totally non-specific and and um, you know just any old poison would kill the cells. Mm-hmm. And um, earlier in the show, you kind of hinted that you found these new classes of drugs that were active that were have not been tested in myeloma. We can't end a sh- you know we can't get to the end of the show and not cover that because that's really important. So, what classes of drugs did you discover? Well, we've published a paper on this now. So we, in, in our very first screen where we took sort of three or 400 drugs and, and looked at them, and they were sort of drugs that this chemical company had on the shelf. Um, they're called Nanosyn, uh, great scientists. They're great colleagues and partners. Um, and I don't know quite why they pulled this one off the shelf. They just didn't think they had it. It was convenient. And the, the really fascinating thing about this class of drugs is that they were developed by drug companies to treat totally different diseases, uh, essentially to treat um, inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis because they were shown to be able to turn off some of the the proteins in the blood or the genes that are making the proteins in the blood uh, that were driving the inflammation associated with those diseases. So inflammatory bowel disease is an inflammatory condition. There are things called cytokines, which are um, uh, proteins which usually stimulating cells of the inflammation system to grow faster and to proliferate. And these drugs uh, were developed because they inhibited those those, pro- those cytokines. In our assay, uh, quite amazingly, they were extremely powerful and extremely potent, uh, but not in all the samples, only about 40% of them, for reasons we don't fully understand yet. Uh, subsequent work on this class of drugs, they're called PYK5 inhibitors, and that's uh, spelled P-Y-K-F-Y-V-E. Um, there were three of them that had all been developed by drug companies that you can sort of buy off, a, off the shelf now, and and all three of them were very powerful um, and, and somewhat surprisingly so, and only consistently only in about 40% of patients and it turns out that the, these drugs that were inhibitors of inflammation were doing so by inhibit by blocking this this gene called PIK5 kinase. And uh, we went on to publish a paper just last year to show that breast that result. All three of these drugs in this class were very active in in about half of the patients, 40% of patients, and that since they'd already been in clinical trials before and were relatively non-toxic in the trials, uh, that these are drugs that were potentially repurposable and could be mm-hmm. used in, in humans. So part of our ongoing work now is to try and make slightly different molecular versions of the drugs um, and and then take those into clinical trials. So that's something we're working on now. Uh, we're at sort of the stage, actually, of looking to to animal studies to see if they're toxic or not in animals, um, looking at other types of cancers to see if is this just myeloma or, or, or other cancers affected. And the, the, so far, it seems to be pretty specific to lymphoma and myeloma and not so much the other cancers. Um, so we think we're onto something here. Uh, the drugs that we used are sort of generic chemicals you can buy out of a catalog today. So uh, we, we think it's important to develop slightly modified versions of those and 
and take them forward to one day go into clinical trials. So we thought it was quite an exciting discovery and um, hopefully it will lead to more investigation from other people and, and, and maybe a resurgence of use. There is one, uh, one of the three drugs is called the Pilamod. And there is a mm-hmm. company that is studying that in, in early stage trials in lymphomas. And certainly, uh, hopefully we got their interest. They may want to study their drug in, in myeloma as well because it's already in clinical studies. It wasn't the strongest of the three, but it certainly was the most most readily available. And a company, hmm. unless they've changed their name, is called LAM, L-E-M Therapeutics. And I, I haven't spoken to them in 18 months, but um, I think they're still studying the drug in lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's fascinating to be able to find a, a whole new class of drugs that could be uh, working. Know, the way, Are they? Yeah. yeah. The, way, the way they work is... It's kind of curious, actually. When you treat a cell with them, the cell fills up with what looks like a bunch of, uh, you know, sacks of fluid or balloons. Um, they call it vacuolation. So these big kind of fluid-filled sacks develop in the cell, and then the cell sort of spontaneously dies. And it's quite—it's not something you see with other drugs when you treat myeloma. So it's something quite unique. Um, so just even understanding how they're doing that and, and what why that's important in a myeloma cells life is is going to be an interesting area to study over the next uh, few years. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating. I also saw something there about, before we open it up for call questions, I just had a couple more, Um, that there were hyperdiploid patients. I guess these are patients that have extra copies of chromosomes. But um, what did you see that worked potentially best for those patients? You know, Jenny, off the top of my head, I can't even remember. Um, no, I will have to go back and look at it, too. <laughs> I'll include it there. Hyperdiploidy, we would consider low-risk disease. So um, yeah. it's about 50% of myeloma patients. It's very odd because it's always the odd number of chromosomes. It's always chromosomes, uh-huh. you know, 1, 3, 5, 7, which nobody, can, nobody will be able to explain to you why that is. It's very strange. Um, we classify those as lower risk, so some of the, the again, a little bit more sensitive to the usual drugs and less sensitive to the the uh, more potent drugs. Uh, so Salinexor is a little bit less active in that group, whereas Venetoclax, well, not Venetoclax, actually. Um, I'm trying to think what other drugs might have been more useful. You'll have to remind me because I can't remember. Oh, well, um I'll have to go back. (laughs) But, you know, I think what people need to know is that class, that that type of myeloma is is the one, honestly, that has the best prognosis. uh, Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's usually quite, quite exquisitely sensitive to the the drugs that we use. And it's it's one of those types that we feel most confident we're going to get a good outcome for. And fortunately, it's 50% of patients. These are a little bit more common in, in older patients than younger ones, and a little bit more common in IgG myeloma as opposed to IgA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you didn't know this, uh, you, the audience, IgA tends to associate with the higher risk genetic changes. Again, we have no idea why. Uh, but uh, so IgG generally, hyperdiploid disease, um, a, a little bit uh, better prognosis. One of, one of the curious facts I often tell people when I'm lecturing to, to um, families and, and patients. Uh, the worst bone disease is in hyperdiploid patients often. And, and the theory there is that, so paradoxically, even if your X-rays look terrible, um, it may not be such a bad thing uh, in the long run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is that we think this disease just is around for longer and it has more time to do damage before it gets picked up because it's it's more slowly growing and, and it's causing less problems initially until the bones get quite damaged and then you start to notice it. Yeah, I've heard that too. Higher bone damage but lower risk. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. So my last question, I guess, would be, is this a methodology that you can use to work with pharmaceutical companies to rapidly find new opportunities? I mean, I would think that you could do really rapid drug screening and save them a lot of time and money and effort to see if something like this would even be workable in myeloma. I think that that's exactly probably the, the biggest take-home message from this. Um, you know, we, we even like for venetoclax, for example, rather than doing a trial in 100 patients to show that 20, it works 20% of the time, which is what the data end up showing. If you took that same uh, drug and, and 
made sure it worked first, you could probably double the response rate or triple it and, and have a much yeah. faster readout that your drug is, is effective. It may not work for all drugs. We already talked about the immune modulators and how that didn't work, and the cyclophosphamide because it wasn't metabolized didn't work. Uh, but for things like bortezomib, and then some drugs like bortezomib work almost 100% of patients, so it wouldn't really help there except to tell you you've got a good drug. But for drugs with that sort of more targeted nature, like the, the new ones we discovered or like uh, venetoclax, uh, it, it could be a very powerful tool. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, whatever we can do to save time and money and get to answers faster exactly. about what potentially could cure myeloma, that would be terrific for everyone. Exactly. Amazing. Well, Dr. Stewart, I want to open it up for caller questions as well. So if you have a question for Dr. Stewart, you can call 347-637-2631 and then press 1 on your keypad. And we'll start with a caller at 264-7609. Go ahead with your question. Hi, Jenny. It's Jack Aiello. And Dr. Stewart, it's always good hearing from you. Hi, Um, Jack. I had a question on the assay. You know, we myeloma patients always go to presentations, and one of the first graphs we see is that the uh, deeper the response you get, the longer progression-free survival and overall survival one typically has. Are you able to measure kind of depth of response in this assay? No, Jack, we can't measure that. All we're really measuring is, we we end up measuring something called the uh, well uh, no not not the way you would think about it but the assay tells you two things it tells you what percentage of the tumor cells die right so is a percent die or some some sometimes it was quite interesting we saw that twenty or thirty percent of the cells would die but the other seventy percent would just quite happily keep living suggesting that there was you know two different flavors of tumor in, in the sample. Um, or, or myeloma in a sample. Uh, the second thing it tells you is what concentration of drug is required to do the killing. And so we use something called the effective concentration 50%. So what we would read out to the physician is, this is the concentration of drug it took to kill 50% of the cells in 24 hours. So that doesn't really tell you uh, much more than that. It doesn't tell you whether you know, in an individual patient, that drug is going to get rid of 99% or or 10%. Um, yeah. And you know, part of the reason is also, you know, we all metabolize drugs differently. So you give drug, the same drug to two different people, different sizes, different weights, different genetic makeup. And it's not always going to be better liver function, worse kidney function. You're going to get different concentrations of the drug and it will do different things. So that's why we can't really tell what the depth of response would be. We're just trying to predict whether there's, there's going to be some response or no response. Thank so you, and enjoy the work. maple leaf. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, that would be a long time coming. But uh, It's sad as a Canadian. I don't even like hockey that much, but uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks. Don't tell them. Jack. <laughs> okay, we have another call at 3739626. Go ahead with your question. Yeah, Dr. Stewart, it's your favorite patient, Chad Snow. I don't know if you remember me from, <laughs> from Phoenix. But, yeah, um, hi, Chad. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, two questions. One, you and Jenny had talked at the beginning of the show about getting more accurate genetic testing. <coughs> is, excuse me. Is, is that something that you can just ask your doctor um, to order for you, or how do you go about getting that? Yes, I think you should discuss it with your doctor and, and, and say, you know, you've heard it might be useful and that uh, you'd like to, um, to, to, to to pursue that if you can. Um, I think there will be a couple of questions that might come up. Uh, you, you, if you're willing to pay something out of pocket, whether you want to join a research study or just to find out what your insurance will cover in the first place. So I think we're very variable depending on where you are. I think if you're in the major centers, you're going to be able to get that testing quite easily. If you're in a smaller community setting, it may require a referral to a major center to, to get that kind of testing done. And, and Chad, by the way, you need to call me afterwards because I, I, I know you had some issues recently. I, I wanted, I'm glad to hear your voice, actually. So uh, give me a shout. I, I will for sure. Second question, just real quick. As you know, I was supposed to go into a CAR-T trial in 
March and that got derailed because of COVID. How how is it looking for FDA approval of just commercially available CAR T? Yeah, great question. Um, so the the one that was filed, the only one that's been filed with the FDA so far is from Bristol Myers Squibb, uh, which used to be Celgene, of course, and it's a BCMA targeted CAR T. My understanding is when they filed initially, there were some issues with the the manufacturing portfolio they submitted, and they had to go back and fix that and resubmit it again. And uh, the last I heard, and it, it may not be completely accurate, so don't hold me to it, uh, was they have refiled, and um, it's in the works. So uh, we used to tell our patients we expect we expect to see this. And personally, I think there's absolutely no doubt it will get approved. Um, we expected to see uh, approval this summer, I think, because of that manufacturing delay and, and perhaps because of COVID slowing everything down, uh, it may be uh, it may be into the fall before we see a, a commercial product. We're all waiting uh, anxiously because we, you know, there's huge pent up demand for this, and uh, uh, right, right now it's 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 not only not commercially available, but the clinical trials also got completely disrupted by the COVID pandemic, uh, manufacturing problems, not problems, but inability to manufacture during the, the pandemic slowed down availability. Uh, the drug companies couldn't come in and study the charge of patients in the hospitals. So a lot of the trials were just halted and stopped. And um, it's it's been a bit of a difficult situation for everybody. But for right. commercial yeah. product, I think, by the way, I want to just uh, tell your your audience that uh, FDA approval doesn't automatically mean the drugs on your doorstep the next day. Once they approve it, um, then it, there is a period of time during which you know the insurers have to catch up. The the, the supply chain has to kick into action to deliver um, across many countries. And the experience in lymphoma is, to some degree, uh, that. Um, even the pharma companies themselves are having a little bit of trouble manufacturing enough of the product to satisfy the demand. So uh, there are lots of reasons that this might be a bit slower to roll out than everybody had hoped. In the meantime, there are a lot of clinical trials going on, if not with CAR-T, with things called BITES, and they seem to have uh, pretty active as well. Um, and if, if you can't get hold of CAR-T, I, I would suggest you talk to your doctor about uh, whether a bite therapy on a clinical trial might be might be of interest. Unfortunately, those are still pretty early stage testing, which means there's again more more demand than than supply. So um, you have to you have to uh, persevere, I think, to try and get on one of those studies. But they do seem to work quite well, and and in some patients for quite a long period of time. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your questions, Chad. Thank you, uh, Dr. Stewart, for answering. We have one more question. Five five eight eight one six three. Go ahead with your question. Hi, Dr. Stewart. Um, my question is, how do you use this test panel to test future immunotherapies, and where do you where do you go from here? Do you test immunotherapies now, or more drugs in different classes, uh, or anything else? Yes, I, I I didn't know if I heard all that correctly, but we haven't really used this assay to t to test immunotherapies because there is no immune system in the in the wells, um, you know, the T cells that are activated by CAR T um, therapy are not present, so we, we wouldn't expect to see an activity. Uh, so we haven't really, it actually doesn't lend itself to studying the immune system. I think there are other groups out there trying to do that where they, where they are trying to study that in, in the test tube, but it's still a ways out from being clinically impactful. Um, small molecule-wise and new drugs coming along, you know, nothing nothing I've really heard about that um, uh, to get excited about. We certainly are looking forward to getting venetoclax approved by the FDA. Um, we think that the CAR-T and the BITES will get approved over time. So there's more coming. But uh, new classes completely out of the blue and, and very active. There may be some. I'm, I'm, if there are, I'm not aware of them. I mean, the good okay, news, right. I think, is every two, every two years we get a new drug in myeloma, and that's been consistent since, uh, since uh, you know, 2000. So 20 years on, we, you know, we have 10 drugs now, and there's no sign of that slowing down. There's, there's, there's dozens of drugs in the clinic, and there's at least four or five that should get FDA approval in the next few years. So they keep coming. 
Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Okay, thank you so much for your question. And Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for joining us today. What an informative uh, body of research you've been working on. I think it's truly moving the field forward in knowing how to treat which kind of patient, how to personalize medicine. And um, I just say keep going with this assay. <laughs> And keep All testing right. new things, and and um, we're excited for your research, and excited that you're a Princess Margaret, and just appreciate everything you do for patients. All right, take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, thank you so much, and thank you for listening to another episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio. We invite you to join us next time to learn what myeloma research means to you. 